Welcome to the Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry, uh, back again to talk about a film recommendation from Barrett Fisher. This week we are talking about the 2000 Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store to have a little chat. Barrett, how you doing? Good. Good morning, Sam. Um, this was a really fun one to revisit. This is a movie I've seen many times, but I probably haven't seen in a decade. I think when it, I think I saw this twice in the theater and, um, a bunch of times, probably from about 2000 to 2005. And then, um, and then I seen it periodically. The soundtrack is burned into my head though. I mean, that's one of the first things that I think about when I think about this movie. Yeah, I had the same experience. I don't think I've seen it quite as often as you have. Probably seen it three, three or four times. But certainly, um, especially after the first time I saw it, the soundtrack got constant play in our house. Um, it's a fantastic soundtrack. So, what is your history with uh, with the Coen Brothers in general, and with this film in particular? I think probably. I'm trying to think, I think probably my first Coen Brothers film. I was aware of Coen Brothers. I was aware of things like Raising Arizona which I've actually still never seen in its entirety. Um, I think my first Coen Brothers film probably was Barton Fink, um, which, which my wife hated, um, still hates, but um, that was the first, I think from Barton Fink forward, I became a Coen Brothers fan. And I think I, from that point on, I saw most of them in the theater when they came out. And certainly I remember seeing Oh Brother, Where Art Thou in the theater. Yeah, I remember this was I was a big Coen Brothers fan. I think Fargo was my was my entry point. Although I remember when Barton Fink came out, I remember watching like CBS this morning cuz cuz that that did really well at Cannes, right? Yeah, I, did, yeah. I think that's yeah. why I noticed it as well. I think that was their that, that was their first kind of big international splash. Right. So I remember that and I remember the image of like John Turturro in that movie. Yeah. Um, and that was probably my introduction to him. Um, that or do the right thing was my introduction to him. And then um, Fargo came out and that was that film. It's an odd choice, but that film played on a loop my sophomore year in college and in, in my uh, in my dorm room. We just we had a couple of roommates uh, and I was one of them who were sort of obsessed with that movie. And it would just you'd walk into the into the townhouse and it would it would just be on all the time. So I feel like I know every breath of that movie. Um, but this this movie came out in. Uh, one of those magic moments where I was in my first year of graduate school and I wasn't paying attention to anything. And I was out with a couple of friends and we walked by a movie theater and we saw that there was a Coen brothers movie that came out. And like, we need, none of us were aware that there was a, that they had a movie coming out. We weren't paying attention to that stuff because we were all busy with, with other things. And so we, that night we went to it and it was and loved it. And then I went with my wife, um, probably that same week. So I probably went twice that first week. Um, just because I was excited for her to for her to see it as well. And, and um, do you have say again? Did she enjoy it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She she and I have uh, have similar tastes when it comes to these things. So um, yes, she. And then I think I think the first person we were excited to talk to um, about it was her dad, who um, has been in bluegrass bands and things like this. So we're like, you're you're gonna love this. And we got him tickets to the. Um, the down from the mountain show mm -hmm. um, where the yeah. uh, some of the folks who recorded the music then did, you know, tour to show uh, a show with it. Cause that, that soundtrack became a, a pretty big phenomenon. Um, 
maybe before we get into this movie uh, specifically, staying sort of generally with the Coens, do you have what are what are your favorite Coen Brothers movies? Like, because they have very different types of movies that they make. Um, or they've made a wide array of movies. Do you have do you have films that's of theirs that stand out to you as particular favorites? Well, you know, it's hard to think about the Coen Brothers without without thinking about Fargo. I mean, certainly, I think that's that's. One one of my favorite things, one of their one of their best films. Um, uh, I would say uh, certainly No Country for Old Men. Um, I think that's really uh, a, a great film. Um, I like I like True Grit as well. Um, I I always get a little bit suspicious of, of remakes, but uh, I think True Grit works really well in many ways. I think it's better than the uh, than the the original True Grit. Um, so those those among their more serious films, and then probably the other one I really I really enjoy, which I made the mistake of showing to my 80, 83 year old mother, uh, is the Big Lebowski. Um, I, I I don't quite know what was on my mind, thinking she would enjoy that, but um, that was a particularly painful experience watching the film because I wouldn't turn it off, and she wouldn't tell me to turn it off. Um, but I I I I, did, I I really I really liked the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I think that is. That's probably my favorite comedy. Um, it's it's definitely the one that I go back to the most. I mean, and not just my favorite Coen Brothers comedy, but my favorite comedy uh, movie period. Um, and then I I loved uh, I love Fargo. I love No Country for Old Men. Um, I actually love this movie uh, this movie quite a bit. I will say the Coens have this tendency, even with the Big Lebowski, that the first time I see their movies, I very often sort of feel like I'm not sure what to make of that. I want to see it again, and I I think I liked it, but I'm not sure. Um, the one exception to that was was um, a serious man. I loved that movie, oh, and the, yes, I think I've only seen it once. Yeah, uh, but um, it was like it landed right the first time for me. Oh, I, I'm glad you said that one because that that that's one I certainly should have said, Sam. I've seen that twice, and I I, uh, I think, yeah. In fact, maybe now that you remind me of a serious man, that might be my second favorite. I just think it's got so many so many great moments in it. So yeah, and that's one that I want to circle back to as we get to the end of our conversation because I want to end by thinking a little bit about uh, religion uh, mm. in this movie, religion in Coen Brothers movies, and I think these two have a. Uh, more of it than we maybe see in some others. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Um, in so so in light of thinking about last week's film, because these were sort sort of paired in in a number of ways. Um, when you heard the Coen Brothers were making or made a movie called Oh Brother Where Art Thou in two thousand, you were already at that point aware of Preston Sturgis. Already yeah. at that point, had seen Sullivan's Travels. What were your thoughts when you heard that, even before you saw the movie? Oh, first, my my first thought was, uh, I'm a smarty pants, because I know exactly what the inside joke is. <laughs> so, <laughs> my my first thought. Um, no, and then of course I'm like, well, you know, if if they're if they're smart enough to uh, to refer to Preston Sturgis, it's going to be a typical kind of smart alecky. Uh, Coen Brothers film, um, which which in some ways it is, but in some ways it, it I mean I think there's an earnestness of this film you've already alluded to um, that is um, uh, that, that that that's not always typical of the Coen Brothers, um, and sometimes they're seen as being kind of um, well smart alecky about stuff, uh, and I think this film has that, but it's also got a really kind of serious element to it as well, which is, I think, exactly what is happening in Sullivan's Travels as well. I don't know if I went in with exactly that level of expectation, but that's the way, uh, that's one way to think about it coming from Sullivan's Travels. Absolutely. Um, 
So, I mean, one way to think about this, and I think the Coens have said this, and I think we're going to probably at certain points in this say the Coens have said, and whenever we say that, we need to take all of that with a grain of salt, because I don't know that I always trust the things that they like to put out into public. But they've talked about this as this is the film that um, John Sullivan would have made. I want to I dissect that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is the film that John Sullivan would have made before his research, would have made after his research, or do you think this is not the film John Sullivan would have made? I don't think it's the film John Sullivan would have made. I, th- I think this is, um, why do I say that? Um, I, I, I think, uh, to, to be frank, I think this is a more sophisticated film than John Sullivan would have made. Um, I think that when you when you look at, the the message of Sullivan's travels in general and John Sullivan in, in particular, um, I think I, I don't think he would have made a film that's as in some ways complex as Oh Brother Where Art Thou is. I think that it's it's a funny film in a lot of places, but it's it's not exactly a film to make you forget your troubles and laugh uh, the way we see uh, in Surge the film, the way we see comedy being presented, and he presents comedy as. Um, an escape from reality. So I think it's significant in the Sullivan's travels, he's watching a cartoon. Um, but that's not a brother of art though. There's laughs in this film, plenty of laughs, but it's also a film that um, kind of does at the same time what Sullivan's travels does, which John Sullivan says he doesn't want to do, which is kind of, it, it. it's very strong in its emphasis on the depression setting. It's strong in its emphasis on corruption and racism um and poverty and those are the very things that sullivan says people don't want to see reflected so i think that the extent to which the film continues to reflect um that aspect of reality i don't think that's the film uh john l sullivan would have made um so i'm trying to remember to the year 2000 when this came out um and does this seem like a movie speaking to the year 2000 does it seem like a movie out of time well, in one respect, of course, it's it's deliberately out of time, right? Because it's a movie about the depression. It's a movie set in, in 1937. But I also think, you know, 2000, um, as I recall, we were still riding pretty high. Um, I don't think it was the dot-com, bu- dot-com bubble had burst quite yet. Uh, no. It seems to me the economy was pretty, was pretty robust. Um, I think there's a lot of optimism uh, in the country. So I think it's a film in that sense that you can kind of afford to make because you can look back and put it in a depression setting uh, and just um, feel like, well, we're, we're in better times. And so it's okay to kind of nostalgically frame this narrative uh, in, in the depression. So I think in that sense, it's an easier film to make in 2000 than it is in 2020. Sure. Uh, does, it, does it read different uh, now than it did in 2000 to you? That's an interesting question, um, because I think that so much of what happens when we watch films, as you've already alluded to, Sam, is that I, I think you're sometimes taken back in many respects to the to an original feeling about the film. So, you know, so I feel like when I watched this film, I, I kind of got lost in the world of the film. And I, I, and I didn't find myself thinking much about uh, I, I'm watching this film in the context of COVID-19, or I'm watching this film in the midst of our current economic uncertainty. Maybe, maybe I'm just a particularly obtuse viewer in that sense. But I didn't, I didn't watch it with any more of a heightened sense of the connection between the depression economy in the film and our current recession slash depression economy. So I, I don't know why that is. It's just like I said, maybe it's a matter of getting kind of lost in the world of the film, which is exactly why I go to films um, to try sure. to 
try to forget um, what's going on in the, in the outside world. So one of the fun things with with um, a lot of Cone movies, but this one in particular, I think, is the um, the array of illusions that the film is making to other things. So I mean, we we'll, so we've we've already talked a little bit, and I want to talk I want to talk more about Preston Sturgis and Sullivan's travels in terms of thinking about this. But I want to um, I'm not good at always recognizing illusions, but I wrote down things that I noticed. Were like, oh, this seems this seems interesting. So um, to hit some of the obvious ones first, as you watch this film. Where do you see Preston Sturgis in general and Sullivan's Travels in particular in this film? Well, yeah, I, I guess I guess an obvious uh, way to start would be just that the film begins as Sullivan's Travels does with an epigraph, right? Um, Sullivan's Travels, we have the dedication to the mountain banks that make us laugh. In this film, we have the quotation from from the Odyssey. Um, it opens uh, in much the same way that Sullivan's Travels opens with a kind of a misdirection in terms of the genre of the film. You know, Sullivan's Travels opens with a serious fight on the train. This opens with a, uh, with, with a, with a, ch with a chain gang. Um, we've got the same depression setting, right, 1937. We, we also open with um, the chain gang also features a, 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 cor a Negro chorus in the same way that you have in the, in, in the black church in uh, Solomon's um, film. We get a brief look at the characters attempting to ride the rails. They don't quite get on the rails the way uh, Sullivan and the kid do, uh, but they're about. But to you you do get you do get almost the same look that uh, yeah. ev that that uh, Everett gets from the other people on the train that yeah. uh, Sullivan gets when he tries to engage them. And that, and that has one of the most memorable lines to me in the film, which is, "Any of you gentlemen smithies are otherwise killed in the metallurgical arts." Um, and we can get into the whole dialogue later, later on. Um, of course, to me, the most obvious one, or the, the most direct reference to Sullivan's Travels, the most intentional one, is when the young Hogwallop kid shows up in the, in the car, uh, which is a direct quotation of the 13-year-old uh, in the Whippet tank uh, in, Sullivan, in Sullivan's Travels. Um, and then, you know, the prisoners being brought into the movie theater in the same way that they are, uh, the prisoners are brought into the church uh, in Sullivan's travels. And, and then I, I would say, this is maybe a bit of a stretch, but I think the general notion of, um, of, of kind of returning from the dead uh, in the way that Sullivan returns from the dead by confessing to his own murder and the way that after the flood occurs, all three of the main characters uh, pop up out of the water uh, in a kind of baptismal uh, re resurrection. Uh, I guess that's more of a thematic than a visual illusion, but still it, it made me think about uh, that aspect of Sullivan's travels. Yeah, you also have the. Um, uh, I was thinking about when uh, when they get pardoned. There's sort of this sense that like, oh, the justice system in certain ways with certain people in power can just sort of make things happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like that. That was that was was definitely another moment. I would say it was very fun to watch this movie almost immediately after Sullivan's travels. Uh, without even looking for things it was like oh yes that's very much you know that, that that was very much this like i didn't remember the kid in the car i mean i remembered the kid but i didn't remember the way he pulls up in the car and he even looks like the kid in the in, in uh in sullivan's travels and it's like oh there you know and and i in the same with the movie theater scene the idea of sort of sitting and watching a movie and then the the the, the chain gang coming in um let's talk dialogue a little bit here because i you know they seem to i i'm less familiar with other preston surges movies but from things you've said and even certain scenes in sullivan's travels um there's a certain type of of dialogue and and, and are they leaning on him in terms of that as well well i think the coen brothers have a kind of um 
screwball sensibility. You know, we talked about screwball comedy back when we talked uh, last week when we talked about Sullivan's Travels. And um, they, and, and that's, I think, always been a characteristic of their films. I mean, in a sense, what I should have referred to last week when we talked about there was the Hudsucker Proxy uh, is really kind of their, that's, that's their kind of even more direct homage to, uh, to screwball uh, and to that whole kind of genre of, sna of snappy dialogue. And so I think it's, um, I think it comes naturally to them, but I also think, um, especially in this film, there is more of a sense of a kind of, um, a, a kind of self, I guess there's a kind of self-conscious cleverness about it, which in that sense is a little bit different from, uh, from Sturgis, uh, but they're both, they're both kind of mannered um, because mm -hmm. they're, uh, it, it's almost, if you, if you take the mannerisms uh, a little bit farther, you get to a David Mamet film where, where, where people, deliberately don't talk the way people actually talk um it's so it's so stilted and deliberately um artificial uh and i think you get some of that in in, in this film and i think part of that is that 1930s or early early 40s um really uh clever uh clever dialogue and of course what's interesting about this film is that um in another way in which the film is is like Sullivan Travels, but even even more so, if that makes any sense, is the way that they're mixing genres. So, uh, and that gets to the dialogue because you have um, Everett kind of talking like a Clark Gable character and even looking like Clark Gable and even performing a lot like Clark Gable. And I owe, I owe that insight to A.O. Scott in the New York Times. Um, but then you've, got, then you've got Pete, who in some ways uh, seems to be a, um, a caricature of a certain Southern type. Uh, and then, and then Delamar, uh, and, and none of them talk like Everett. So it's, it's, so it's almost as though he's not only mixing genres, but he's, he's mixing characters and types of the dialogue, uh, within, within the same film. So that, that willingness to kind of mix genre, I think is, uh, is another legacy of, of Sturgis, but I think the Coen brothers take it, take it even further. And I think that's actually accounted for. Uh, the surprising number of negative reviews uh, that, that I ran across. Um, I had thought this was one of the Coen Brothers films that was like universally loved, and it's not. Uh, and there's a number of critics who don't think it works. They think it's a pastiche. They think it doesn't go anywhere. And I think that's because they're not kind of buying into this sort of um, deliberate uh, genre uh, mix-up that they're, that they're indulging in. Well, what's interesting is the way Everett stands out in his ability to talk, and it, it's it's no mistake that the, his crime was uh, practicing law without a license. Like I could I could see that, right? That seems very obvious. And actually, that I think starts to lead into the other very obvious set of illusions, which is it almost seems like Everett sort of has this linguistic superpower. Like he's exceptional compared to anybody else in the film with his ability to do that. In the same way, um, when I think about reading reading Homer, in the same way that the, you know, a thousand ships sail on Troy, but when you read Homer, you learn about this sort of class of heroes that are on those ships. There's all these, there's a lot of, um, I think the Star Trek term would be red shirts, right? Like people who you don't know anything about who, you know, who like they fight that war and die, but then the, then there are these heroes and and Everett sort of stands out in a kind of way like that. Now he has like a good Homeric, Homeric hero has his flaws and shortcomings as well, but, um, but, but he definitely stands out in that way. So, which makes me think about Homer a little bit. Um, so they, you know, they, they start this by saying, you know, this is based on the Odyssey by Homer and there are some very 
obvious um, Homeric references here. So where do you see Homer in this film? And I will say, you know, uh, this is, we're going to go back to another, the Coens say. So the Coens claim that they've never read Homer or they've never read the Odyssey, but they've sort of picked this up through the ether and that Tim Blake Nelson, who was a classics major at Brown, mm -hmm. was the only person who had actually read Homer. I don't know that I believe that. Um, but uh, so where do you see Homer in this film? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think you can, you can look at some obvious places and then you can argue for some maybe um, more obscure places. So, uh, you know, the, the obvious places are in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Everett's name, you know, he's Ulysses Everett. Um, the appearance of the, uh, the blind seer at the beginning uh, on the railroad track when they're, uh, when they're rescued by the hand car. Uh, he's kind of, you can say he's equivalent to the Tiresias uh, figure in, uh, in, in Homer and the whole classical tradition of blind seers. Um, uh, I um, Mr. Lund, you know, the one that cuts the record for them, um, uh, he might be seen, he's another blind, another, another blind uh, uh, character, so he might be seen as Homer. Um, most obviously, of course, the three sirens, uh, and they were told they're sirens, uh, and Big Dan T. Right. Big Dan Teague's obviously uh, the Cyclops, and Vernon Waltrip represents the suitors. And just in case you didn't get that right, the girls tell you several times he's a suitor. Uh, we know he's Penelope, a suitor. Penelope, was, uh, Penelope was faithful to Ulysses despite all the suitors. Um, and then, uh, okay, so well then Penny, Penny is is, is Penelope. Um, you know, some of the other possibly more obscure ones would be uh, Papio Daniels. First name is actually Menelaus. Um, and so that's, you know, uh, Helen's, uh, husband. Um, and then the one that is, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about is, um, Sheriff Cooley because, uh, he's there when, when the water flows, uh, when the, when the dam breaks and, or, and some people have identified him with Poseidon, but I, I don't think that actually works in the context of the film. I think in the context of the film, he's most clearly the, the devil figure. Uh, that is is referred to uh, when we're told that the devil is in fact a white man. So I'm I'm not sure he fits in with kind of the Homeric illusions, uh, but it's possible. Anyway, those to me are the most clear, you know, connections to uh, um, to Homer. Yeah, and I, if you, it is, it's I find it interesting, you know, in terms of their. Um claims to not have read the Odyssey. The, the thing that I would say, well, maybe, uh, is that that the thing I love about the Odyssey and I love about Joyce's Ulysses is the role that uh, Telemachus plays. And like, this is, this is an Odyssey without the Telemachus story. I mean, you have the daughters who are there at the very end, mm -hmm. but, but the Odyssey really starts with the son going out in search of the father. And, right. you know, so like, so, so that part's missing. And I think if you, if you're just getting the Odyssey and just getting Homer through other references, that's the part that tends to get dropped out. So they also, they also sort of drop out that part of as the story structure goes. Well, um, I think it's an interesting point, Sam, because I think that one of the things the film is doing is it's, it's putting, um, you might say it's putting Christian content within a, um, within a pagan structure. So, the Odyssey is, in a sense, the excuse for the episodic nature of the tale. But what's happening inside the story is not really Odyssean or Homeric. Mm -hmm. If that if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And and I will say, 
the other thing that is Homeric, Homeric, and this goes back to some of the criticisms. This was Roger Ebert's criticism: is like he sort of said, "I like the parts, but they don't all they don't seem to fit together." And it's like, well, have you read the Odyssey? The Odyssey feels like that to me too. It's like, and the Odyssey is in it's in a weird order, and you know, it's not a it's not a linear story. And it's like actually, this feels like reading this feels like reading the Odyssey to me because I remember uh, I read it in the last year. I reread it and. Um, I had this moment where I needed to like structure the order of the story back because the story structured in a strange way. Odysseus is because some of the things that are happening is Odysseus telling stories about things that happened to him in the past. And then some of it are things moving forward. Um, so they don't use that structure either, but there is this sense of sort of small episodes in that. Um, but, but there is the but, other illusion, but there is a definite narrative narrative forward. Right. And we have, you know, he, he you know, we, we have a, we have a time frame that we're working within. Um, but but I, I would also say, Sam, here's another connection to Sullivan's travels is I find it very confusing at times to know exactly where they are, because because it seems mm -hmm. like, you know, especially after Pete gets uh, captured again and, and, they're, and they're and they're and they're riding by and they see Pete and the chain gang. And I'm thinking, but I thought they were miles away by now. Uh, and then how they kind of keep going by the radio station. Um, and then the, mm -hmm. the other element of each of, of continual return is they're always, I don't know, I, I lost track of how many different vehicles they're in. Uh, they always seem right. to be picking up and losing, and losing vehicles. So on the one hand, you've got that sense of structure, but on the other hand, you've got this temporal structure where, you know, they have to get to the treasure before a certain, before a certain date. I mean, I, you know, I want to say to Roger Ebert, well, have you not, have you not watched road movies? I mean, that's, that's the way road movies work. Um, they're, right. they're they're episodic, um, but you're moving forward in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. the other the other illusion, which I actually haven't, as I was trying to read, I I thought, well, this is an obvious one to me as I was watching this, is how much of the Wizard of Oz is in this movie? Yeah, Ao Scott picked up on that as well. Yeah, yeah. So so, um, so where, where 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 do you see that, Sam? Well, I mean it the the. There is definitely the it's the movie starts actually starts in black and white and then they pull the colors up a little and this is famously the first digitally color corrected movie and then at the end they go back to black and white I mean just very quickly but but there's um there's a number of shots that they use that are Wizard of Oz shots where mm -hmm. you see like the three or four of them like peeking around the corner and it's and it's and oh, I yeah. and I didn't even like I I kind of want to go back and watch the Wizard of Oz because the reason that I know it's the Wizard of Oz is because I'm also I'm a I'm a nerd I'm also a fan of um the dark side of the rainbow like syncing up um dark side of the moon with the Wizard of Oz so I I feel like I'm more familiar with the visuals to the Wizard of Oz because I've watched it a few times without the the soundtrack mm. to the movie mm. and there are shots where I'm like, I have seen that before. And I realized, Oh, that's a wizard of Oz shot. And that's there. And, and uh, when they're at the clan rally, when they, when they steal the uniforms, I mean, that's happens. Oh, yeah, Star yeah. Wars has versions of that, but that is a, that is the, that is also the wizard of Oz when they're in the, um, mm. the witches, they, they mm. take the witches guards uniform. So, um, and then the whole thing is this return home, which is the odyssey, which I mean, that's, we're getting into monomyth, maybe there a little bit of like yeah, all yeah. stories are returns home or things like that. But, but there were just, there were multiple moments where something happened on the screen and in my head, it just clicked. Oh, that's the Wizard of. They took that from the Wizard of Oz as well. And then, okay, and then one other illusion, which is probably accidental, but but I, I particularly loved, even though it it may not be intentional, which is um, when you saw Vernon Waltrip, so the the suitor, when you saw him in the Woolworth, did any did anybody's image pop into mind when you saw him? 
Not immediately. And maybe this is just a weird thing in my head. If you look, at, and again, they probably didn't mean this, but this just came to me. If you look at certain youngish pictures of James Joyce, he's sort of dressed like James Joyce, and the, even the way he's wearing his hat and his glasses, and and I'm sure that was accidental, but it's like, you know, Joyce did write Ulysses too. Like he looks like James Joyce. No, so I want to believe they put that in there. No, no. Now, now that you say that, Sam, that actually makes a lot of sense, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past them to know that. So. That's well, and I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that scene though, because I remember the first time I watched the film. I mean, I, I, I knew that Everett wasn't a hardened criminal, but I still could not believe that he he got whooped the way he did in that Woolworths. That 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 to me was kind of a kind of a turning point in in uh, in my estimation of his character, understanding exactly uh, that all of his skill was in fact verbal uh, and 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 certainly not physical. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think, let's talk music for a second here. Would you think of this film as a musical? I mean, there's a, this is a music heavy film, most of it diegetic, um, you know, happening within the context of the movie. Um, oh, I, I just thought of one other Wizard, the Oz, Wizard of Oz thing that ties into music, which is the opening song in the movie in, in this movie is big rock candy mountain which is oh, sort yeah. of about this dreamland right yeah. which yeah. is somewhere over the rainbow like like that that's though if you think about those two themes together they're very similar yeah no that, i think that makes a lot of sense and and you know this film's set in 37 and uh and wizard of oz is 39 so they're certainly of a piece in that respect mm -hmm. so do you think of this as a musical um not really. I mean, I I, I, I I was going to argue among the various genres of the movie and habits that music was one of them, but I think it's probably something of a um, disingenuous argument. Um, I, I, I think of it as a movie in which um, music has um, kind of a dual function. You know, as you, as you point out, a lot of the music is diegetic, so um, the music is incorporated into the world of the film in a way that in musicals it often isn't. You know, I, I think about my favorite musical, probably the, to me, the greatest musical of all time, Singing in the Rain. Um, and it, it kind of wears the, um, the contrivance of musical on its sleeve, you know, which is people just stop in the middle of what they're doing and perform a, and perform a, a musical piece and, and dance. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. kind of the classic sense of musical. So in that sense, no, it's not a, it's not a musical because I think the, the music is um, more intrinsically part of the actual fabric of the action it's not as though people are stopping to sing songs or if they do stop to sing songs it's just uh, the soggy bottom boys uh and it makes perfect sense for them for them to do that um at the same time it's uh it's a film where i think if you, if you don't like the music you're not going to like this film uh i mean the film is so imbued with that music that it's um it's really kind of of a of a, of a piece with uh, with the action uh, if so, I was and, and maybe this was a stretch, and and so feel free to tell me that this is this is ridiculous. But I was thinking about sort of what is the function of this of music in this movie, and thinking about Sullivan's travel and the function of uh, comedy in that in that movie in terms of like like the message of Sullivan's travels has to do with like the importance of laughter and the importance of comedy. And in this movie, you have this tense moment where um, the it's the second Soggy Bottom Boys performance that sort of is ends up being this um maybe this is a, too much of a stretch but like 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 i feel like music is functioning somewhere there to be this common link between people to be this thing that can um 
it can erase their path. I mean, it's it's almost like a like the baptism when when when, when they're baptized in Delmar saying like, all my sins are now washed away, and 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 Everett says, yeah, but that's not going to do that. The police don't care about that, or the government <laughs> doesn't care about that. But it's like, but music was able to wash that away, and music was able to unify those people, and even, um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Like like like, is it is it even slightly like pushing a message like that in the way Sullivan's Travels is saying that about comedy, or am I trying too hard? No, I, I, no, I don't think you're trying too hard. I, I think actually that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's the music that really, in some ways, kind of expresses the, the, theme, of the, the theme of the movie. That's what I was good at getting at earlier, right? The uh, images of the Big Rock Candy Mountain, um, I'll Fly Away, you know, like a bird from these prison walls, I'll Fly Away. Um, the performance of Angel Band, Oh, Bear Me Away on Your Snow White Wings to My Eternal Home. Um, the whole notion that people are, well, I mean, obviously people are looking for treasure, but as the, as the blind seer says at the beginning, the treasure you'll find is not the treasure you seek. Um, and, and, and to me- And you hear this refrain of looking for answers too. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Probably yeah. looking for answers. Yeah, Everett, Everett talks about that, right? People are looking for answers. And um, Tommy says at one point, uh, people drifting from door to door can't find no heaven where they go. Um, and I, and, and I think that that's, that's to me is a profoundly, um, spiritual or even Christian insight that people are looking for, for something, right? I mean, not that there's any illusion to Augustine in this film, right? But our hearts are restless when they find their rest in God, uh, you know, I, I, and I, so I think that's, you know, wh wherever the Coen brothers come down on religion, um, I, I think that they've actually captured something really true about. Uh, people uh, thinking they want one thing, but actually realizing there's something else that they need. Uh, and and Delmar really, Delmar is really the first person to have that insight, right? When he jumps into the water, and and I love what he says. He says, "Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now." Uh, but then he says, "You know, come on in, boys. The water's fine." And Pete joins him. And then later on, of course, right before the flood, uh, even Everett prays. Uh, and even though he tries to make light of that after they've uh, survived the flood. I, I, I still think there's that moment, maybe it's just a foxhole moment, but there's that moment when he does pray, uh, and in a sense his prayers, his prayers are answered. So I think music is, so many of the songs are either about, you know, the, the promise of a better place like the Big Rock Candy Mountain, or um, Happy Days Are Here Again, um, or, you know, this notion that uh, you gotta go through that lonesome valley. I mean, almost all the songs have that, have that message, right? Of seeking for something better, seeking for, uh, for hope. Um, and, and it's significant, I think, that the, that the sirens sing a song that involves the devil. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what leads, uh, leads them temporarily astray. So, so to me, there's a kind of, um, not to push this too much, it's a far, too far, but there's a kind of a, of a more, more of a Christian morality play uh, going on within within this uh, Homeric framework. Absolutely. So, uh, but we're running out of time. But before we move on to our our next movie, is there anything else you want to say about um, about O Brother Where Art Thou? Um, all, all I have to say is, and, and I'm not sure quite how to justify this, but um, I just think I, I I love a film that takes a lot of chances and goes in a lot of different directions. Um, and to me is not a mess, but actually works because so many of those elements just work so well together. And I guess above all, I just, I love the talking in this film. 
Um, I just, you know, we talked a little bit about that with the character of Everett. And it's not just that Everett talks um, in such memorable phrases. Um, for example, one of my favorite lines is he says, it's a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's the way that um, he's in dialogue with other characters who talk quite differently. And it's almost a, uh, it's a, it's a kind of um, uh, dialogical um, miracle. The way, in, at least in my view, those those things work out. It's almost like um, it's almost like Bakhtin's theory of of, of the novel, how it's a, a bunch of dialogues among different voices. And I think the film just works really well with that. Absolutely. So, what uh, coming out of this? What is our next recommendation? Well. I, I have a recommendation that um, I, after it occurred to me, I realized it actually has a connection to this film as well. I feel that was my intention. Um, the, the, I am a baseball fan uh, and um, grieving uh, the lack of a baseball season this year, especially since it looked like such a promising season for the Twins. Um, so I felt like we needed an infusion of baseball. So my favorite baseball movie, among others, is uh, Field of Dreams. Um, and then I realized that in terms of genre, Field of Dreams is uh, a magical realism, which is uh, something you can also say to a certain extent is true of um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So I want to go back to Field of Dreams uh, next week. Oh, I cannot wait. This is one of my this is one of my absolute favorites. So uh, so and um, Barrett, thank you for sitting down. I've thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie. But you know what I've enjoyed even more was this conversation. Um, this was really fun to uh, to get into this movie and to see it through the lens of Preston Sturgis, to see it through the lens of Sullivan's travels. So I will say this episode has achieved the very thing I wanted this podcast to do, which was to get me to see things, uh, even things I've seen before to get me to see them in different ways. So I cannot thank you enough for that. Well, thank you for the idea, Sam. I'm glad I'm glad you came up with it because this is a highlight of my week. <laughs> All right. Well, next week we'll be watching Field of Dreams. Um, I hope you have a great week. Until then, we will see you in the video store.